0: This past October, we did a, a, an outreach to our neighbors, remember what that was called? No. This past October, 31st, we did Best Neighbor Ever, remember that, and we tried to make ourselves better known to our neighbors and be better neighbors and find ways to do that, and I just wondered how that's working out for you. I remember some couple of people saying, my neighbors are weird. To which I say, so? <laughs> We're going to do it again this year. I wonder how that's working out with your, your neighbor who is different. Uh, you know, Jim Varney, before he was saving Christmas, going to jail, going to camp, going to Africa, scared stupid, and the voice of Slinky the dog, Jim Varney was Ernest P. Whirl, Vern's very annoying neighbor who showed up in commercials in the 80s for those of you who weren't born yet i wanted you to benefit from those this morning so you might remember a couple of these roll hey burn boy i'm sure glad you switched from that uncola sprites everything that stuff is clear clean caffeine free but sprite tastes better because only sprite has limon know what i mean Pop me another one of them bad boys. How about it? Burner! Burning my. 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 My, my hands burn. Burning my, my, my. Hey, Burn, Boy, I'm sure glad you switched from that uncola. Well. You get the idea. Ernest was, uh, there's a couple more of those, stay later today, we'll play it for you. Ernest was the epitome of everyone's worst nightmare neighbor. He made people laugh, I think, because they had neighbors just like him, or they made their neighbors look not so bad after all. And uh, I just remember Ernest P. Wuerl helping me have a different thought about my neighbor. So I want to get back into the Sermon on the Mount today, Matthew chapter 7, and I want to talk about your neighbor a little bit as we talk about life in the kingdom of heaven and how that is not just about a different set of values, it's not just about a different lifestyle. Life in God's kingdom is also about being part of a different community of people. Here at Central Christian Church, we have five core values, and tucked in the middle of those, core value number three is this phrase, um, authentic community. Living in the kingdom is about being a part of a community. Brothers and sisters, learning how to build each other up, how to put up with each other, how to figure out life together until we start life together forever. Know what I mean? You and I are going to be seeing a lot of each other. How about that? That's my goal anyway. Is that yours? Over the years, I've heard some people talk about not wanting to be around certain people because they just didn't like them. As if going to heaven and being with them there forever, you're going to not be around them. And they think somehow that they can dislike other people, but they can still find it in their hearts to want them to also be in heaven too. Isn't that nice? Of course you want those people to be in heaven, too, right? To want anything else is to want for someone else to be separated from you. At the final judgment, by the way, there are going to be how many places? Two. (laughs) Two places. Remember, that's how the scriptures talk about, uh, over and over, about the scope of God's kingdom. That There are two groups. There are always two groups that are mentioned, sheep and goats, light and darkness. Wheat and tares, children of God, children of the devil, saved and lost, wise and foolish, those who walk by the Spirit, those who walk by the flesh. There's always two groups and only two. And when it comes down to eternity, there are two places where those groups are going to spend forever, inside and outside, with God separated from God, heaven and hell. So when Jesus talks about being part of his kingdom, he is also talking about, here's the word, being together in that kingdom. Together. You can't live in a kingdom and not live with the other residents of the kingdom. You're either in or out, and that's the deal. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the third core value of Central Christian Church, authentic community. So today we're going to look at some important guidelines. It's in Matthew chapter 7. We're in this third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, the final chapter as we run to the finish of the Sermon on the Mount. And in there, we're going to look at some guidelines, some guidelines that especially have to do with how we relate to one another in this kingdom. In fact, the last verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, that we're going to look at, Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You know, when I preach, I try to take the whole message and to condense it down into one sentence that'll get one point across. Otherwise, it has the, the danger of being like a broken pencil, pointless, all right? Try to get the one point across. So here it is about this message of life in God's kingdom. Life in the kingdom includes learning to play well with others. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? Maybe you've used it too. And I want to tell you this morning, it's not just good for your first grade progress report. Okay, Learning to play well with others. I want to see together how Jesus says that in so many words. That that is being a part of his kingdom. Okay, Here are the guidelines. Matthew chapter 7. Let's start looking in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. For every person who ever was shocked that there are sometimes challenges in church life, let me help you this morning. Here's an important notice. Jesus assumes the kingdom will involve some relational challenges. Do you see it there? Maybe Jesus knows about our tendency to sometimes have to look at other people and talk about their faults. Maybe he understands that we tend to take our insecurities, our failures, our outright rebellion against him, and then try to minimize it by talking about how someone else does the same things or they do it worse. Verse 1 of Matthew 7. Verse 1 of Matthew 7 may well be the most often quoted and known verse by people who don't believe anything about the Bible. Right? Do not judge. Do not judge. It might also be widely known and misused by a lot of people who do believe the Bible. So I want us to look at that today. First of all, I want you to look at that word judge. The word judge... Jesus uses here, the one that Matthew records here. It's just like the way we use the word judge. We use it in different ways. Sometimes when we talk about judging something, we're talking about using discernment. And we'll say to somebody, okay, use your best judgment. That's a positive thing, isn't it? Look Look at the way things are, study the situation, apply wisdom, make a good decision. We call that using good judgment. That's judgment. And that's a good thing, right? Nod with me if that's a good thing. Okay, that's good. We'd use it that way. Another way we use it is more like to analyze or to critique something. And that's good, too. If you do that objectively, that's good. Like, you might be called upon to be a a judge for a pie contest. That's a good job, right? And, And you have to taste all these different pies, and then you judge who the winner is, right? You make a judgment. Using certain criteria. If you're a judge in a court of law, you hopefully look at evidence, and you look at a case as it's presented, and you apply justice, and you pronounce a decision, and we call that decision a a judgment. And if it is just, that is a good thing, isn't it? So that's another way we use judgment that's good. But there is a third way this word gets used, and it's generally negative, and that's the way it's being used here. If I judge you, that means I somehow condemn you or I censure you. Jesus is talking about having a censurious spirit here. When somebody does this kind of judgment, It's about being negative and destructive with other people. The person who judges this way is a person who tears other people down, who sees the worst in them, and who has fun doing it. And it also puts that person and me in roles that we're not supposed to be in. When I judge people that way, I'm taking on a role I'm not supposed to have, and they're put in a role they're not supposed to have either. Since when were you my servant? Since when did you answer to me as Lord? And since when did I know your innermost motives? Since when did I get that authority and wisdom? Paul says in Romans 14, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. I like the way professor at, Lincoln Christian College, Bob Ray puts it. Certain situations, he'll remind people, I am Bob, God is God. Or he puts the God part first. God is God and I am Bob. All right, try that this morning. Oh, your name's not Bob. Fill in the blank with your name. Ready, here we go. God is God and I am Sherm. Sure. See, we're gonna use that again here in a minute. So hang on to that, Okay. God is God, and you are who you are. Now, unlike God, I can't see inside of you, and I can't tell you all of your motives in life. I can't tell you those things about you with great wisdom, because I can't see them unless you put them in sticker form all over the back of your car and I pull up behind you and I'm reading the back of your car and you put some horrible, terrible things back there. You know, if you do that, I don't have to make a judgment call on that. You've already made it yourself. You've already made it known. You've announced without any help from anybody else what you think and what motivates you. Just stick it on the back of your car. I don't know all of your background either, unless unless you're posting it on Facebook every opinion that you've got, everything that you think. If you do that, I suppose, I could say I know those things about you, at least what you say. But I can't fully understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Only God knows you the best, and I'm not him, and I'm not qualified to judge you as he is. Amen? So, Jesus takes this bad kind of judging, and he paints a funny picture. He paints this, picture that's called some, by some people the parable of the foreign bodies. <laughs> foreign bodies, you know, the kind that get in your eye. One person is your brother, he's got a speck in his eye. Ouch! No one likes a speck in their eye. Sometimes you need help getting that out. You'd like to help your brother with the speck in his eye, but Jesus says you're not qualified to do that because you've got a log in yours. Our own guilt makes us unqualified to judge. The log of our own failure makes us unable to see the condition of others honestly. So what's the solution to that? Don't help one another? The solution, look at what Jesus says, is what? First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we've got to exercise love and grace and humility before we jump to condemn people. At the same time, like D.A. Carson says, it doesn't say here that we are to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs. We'll talk about verse 6 there in a moment and address that. But to temper our speaking to one another, we need humility. We need honest self-evaluation. We need moments in life where we compare ourselves to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ instead of comparing ourselves to each other. God has given us some help for this. We already did it this morning. Why do you think that God gives us the Lord's Supper Why do you think that from the very beginning of the church that has been the practice of believers who come together regularly to come around the Lord's table and for that to be, among other things, a time that we examine ourselves? When else, where else, do you sit down in front of God before the mirror of the reality of His Word and consider what you really look like to Him? It's no wonder to me that Jesus started this, he gave us this as a way that we could keep from becoming those who judge in a way that we shouldn't. Yet many believers treat this as if it really was an important part of being a person of God's kingdom. I beg to differ. It's something God has given us to help us to work out the logs that are in our own eyes. Judge not that you be not judged, Jesus said. Somebody else put it this way, never criticize your neighbor until you have walked a mile in his shoes. That way, if you make him mad, you've got a one-mile head start and he's barefooted. All right, there's a second principle here in verse 6, and this one's quite different. Not only are we supposed to not use that negative judgment towards one another, but then Jesus says we should exercise godly discrimination. In chapter 5, he's been saying things like love your neighbor and your enemy, be gracious like God is gracious because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust and you're supposed to be like that. It would be easy to become chronically wishy-washy. It would be easy just to look at everybody and say, you know, everything's fine. And we treat all people exactly the same. But then we get to verse 6. Look what it says. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, this is a different group than the people we were speaking about in the first five verses, apparently. And I want to tell you, this is a different set of dogs and pigs than what you and I are thinking of, usually. This isn't just about puppies and Wilbur from Charlotte's Web here. The word that's used here, in fact, is more like pariah dogs, the kind that run in packs, the kind that scavenge dumps for whatever they can find, the kind that can't really be trusted. And I remember seeing some of these dogs when I was in India, they were just all over the place. They weren't family pets, they were just kind of tolerated. And some of them were treated nicely, but they couldn't be trusted. That's the kind of dogs spoken of here. And when Jesus said pigs, by the way, Again, it's not the nice, clean, pink, hey, we're having bacon today, pigs. First of all, pigs were an unclean animal in the Jews' eyes. And secondly, these were more like wild boars, the kind that trample and tear and kill. Dogs and pigs here are a representation of a negative group of people who are vicious, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, dogs and pigs get paired together again by Peter. That was interesting for me to think about that. Jesus has already addressed for two chapters how to regard in general all the people who are outside of the kingdom. Don't join in with them. Don't be hypocrites like them. Don't resist them. Don't hate them. Forgive them. But look at the picture that he paints right here. Here's a man, he's, I don't know, walking out in a field somewhere and he's confronted by an angry pack of dogs or an angry pack of these pigs. And He doesn't have anything with him except, well, I've got this bag of pearls. They're valuable. Maybe that will help. And he scatters them on the ground. So they rush to eat those and find out, well, these aren't what we wanted at all. And they turn and go after him. That's kind of the picture here. They didn't have any appreciation for what they were worth and so they're angry these are people who appear to be so dead set against the kingdom that jesus says move on dogs and pigs and before getting too bent out of shape about this i'll remind you that jesus referred to herod antipas as the fox that he called the scribes and pharisees you whitewashed tombs you snake babies Titus 1:2, Paul's writing a letter, and he says there is someone in Crete who has written this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, to which Paul says, this testimony is true. This is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, as Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples, he says, go into different towns, and when you go in, if you receive a, a welcome there, then stay there and teach, but if you are rejected there, then you publicly go and you shake the dust off your feet and tell them, we're leaving and going on. Acts chapter 13 chapter 18, and then on into chapter 28, as Paul is going on missionary journeys, it was his practice to go first to the Jews. And if they wouldn't receive the message, more than once he would say to them, you're rejecting it, we're going on. We're going to the Gentiles. Proverbs 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And I know more often we probably need to work at not judging others. Did you notice how many verses are dedicated to that? (laughs) And there's one verse here then that talks about exercising in some specific cases godly discrimination. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. So what do we do with that? Come back next week, I'll tell you what we should do. I think maybe we should end this point by saying that verse 6 of Matthew chapter 7 is in a larger context of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That it is part of this message that we have recorded here. A message that says also that we are to love our enemies, that we are to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus wrote off Herod. Jesus promised that whole cities were going to face harsh punishment in the future. But he also was patient with a group of 12 stumbling disciples. And he was patient with one who had doubts, and he showed him evidence to help him along. And he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Somehow Jesus did both those things. So if you're trying to decide which of the two actions of Jesus should I follow, the answer is both. That's the answer. We should be thoughtful and we should be careful as we handle God's word. And we should be deliberate about where and how we share it. We shouldn't be judgmental, but we should exercise judgment. Amen? I'm going to say it again. We shouldn't be judgmental, but we should exercise judgment. There's a difference. All right, there's a third principle here about this relationships in the kingdom and it goes back to God that we're to pursue God in trust chapter 7 verse 7 ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened Professor Joachim Jeremias and some assistants that he had working with him years ago did a thorough study of all of the prayer literature of Judah. The work of all the Jewish rabbis over the centuries that was collected. All that time, they gathered it together, they studied it, and he said he was impressed by the way that, in the midst of all of that writing about prayer and how we address God, there wasn't one mention where God was addressed as Abba. Abba, the Aramaic word for dad, a word that you would just use for family members, a common word, dad. None of them would have dared to speak to God like that, but you know what? Jesus did. And then he instructs the citizens of his kingdom to do the same. Paul says in Romans 8, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That ought to tell us a lot about the way that we pray. I wish I had more time this morning just to dive into that. But let me just ask you this morning to honestly consider this one question. What does your prayer life mean? reveal about your view of God's character? The way that you pray, the things that you pray for, what does that reveal about what you think about God's character? Is he wise enough to know what his children really need? Is he good enough that he doesn't play games with us or harm us in the way that he deals with us? Is he Kind enough that he addresses the things in life that we're concerned with? Remember that the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you've been paying attention as we go through it, is conditional. And clearly these words are not meant in an absolute sense. Prayer is not us grabbing the magic genie lamp and giving it a rub and out pops God and then he has to do what we say. That's not how prayer goes. Do you really want the responsibility of everything that you pray for coming to be exactly like you prayed for it? Do you really want that? There's a phrase that comes to mind, be careful what you ask for. What if two weeks ago, with the ground dried up and the corn curling, several farmers were praying for rain? And what if at the same time, there were several families who were planning some things outdoors that wanted good weather, so they were praying for no rain? Who wins? What if there was a civil war in the mid-1800s, and generals and families and soldiers on both sides of that war were praying for victory over one another? What if that happened? Oh, by the way, it did. Has God obligated Himself to answer every prayer that we utter? Obviously not. Try the Bob Ray thing again, okay? Insert your name. God is God, and I am. Sure. All right. God is good, God is also wise. And a good parent would never give something harmful to his child when that child is asking for something good. If a child asks for a piece of bread, his father's not going to give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, here's a snake. No. But what if your child asks for something that he thinks is good, and you, being a grown-up and a good parent with wisdom and experience in life, know that your eight-year-old son does not need a smartphone Are you gonna give it to him? No. Many of the things that God gives to us are conditional. They're conditioned upon our asking. They're conditioned upon that they will be good for us because God gives good gifts to his children. And we should thank God that he answers our prayer and that sometimes the answer to our prayer is no or wait. I have something better in mind because I know what's best for you. No loving mom or dad would do any less for their children. Amen. God is our Father who loves us. So as you pray, I want to encourage you to ask yourself these three questions. Enter into prayer with these questions. Number one, have I done my best to consider what God wants first in this situation? His plan. His will according to his holiness his wisdom or is it all about me here's the second question to ask as I pray am I coming to God expectantly that God exists that he is able and that he will respond as he has said writer of Hebrews said whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him do I believe those things Third, do I really want whatever it is that God wants? Or am I praying just because of what I want? One of the scariest things that we can say is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pursue God in trust. Trust. Let's go to verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus draws a conclusion around all these words which I want us to consider as the conclusion here this morning. It's chapter seven, by the way, not chapter five. Chapter seven, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. We call this verse what? The golden rule. You've heard that maybe since you were a kid. People usually call it that. Over the centuries, this has been given in various forms by all kinds of different people, but usually in the negative. Basically saying, don't do what you don't want other people to do to you. The Old Testament Apocrypha, Rabbi Hillel, the Stoics, even Confucius, they all stated it this way Whatever it is you don't want people to do, don't do that. Golden rule. But that's not how Jesus put it here, is it? That'd be so totally empty of action. Think about it. Don't do what you don't want done to you. All right, pick the thing in life that you most don't want, that you dislike the most. All right, being forced to eat beets, something. All right, whatever it is, whatever that thing that you really don't like, don't do that. Okay. That's a non-action. So what do you do? Nothing. It reminds me of a guy going to the doctor and saying, Doctor, it hurts when I do this. (laughs) Don't do that. You were hoping for something else. Jesus said this in a positive form, didn't he? What do you like most? What do you wish most that someone would do for you? You're thinking of a list, aren't you? Well, what's at the top of the list? What do you most want somebody to do for you? You do that. You do that. And by the way, he doesn't say, you do that so they'll do it for you. What does he say? For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is, this is what the Old Testament's about. This kind of sums it up. We should do this because the king says that's how life in his kingdom is supposed to be. Whatever it is you want others to do for you, you do that. You play well with others. You know, if you had to submit a written application for submission into heaven, I'm sure that would be one of the questions. Do you play well with others? Because here in heaven, that's how it's going to be. John wrote this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love, that's by the way we love each other. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what about the person who annoys you? What about your weird neighbor? Do you want him there? Do you want her there or not? See, that's assuming you want you there. So do you want them there? The question here really is, are you in or are you out for God's kingdom plan? Because life in the kingdom includes learning to play well with others. And this morning, that doesn't matter who you are. You've already made it clear that you have some kind of an interest in that because you're here. And Jesus makes it clear that anyone who comes to him, he'll not cast out. He's waiting for you to come. Each time we come to the end of a message here on Sundays, we'll, we'll take a moment and just ask you to reflect on it. Just think about this. Now what will you be doing? Because Jesus has given us something to do, hasn't he? Would you stand up with me? In just a moment, uh, we're going to have a word of prayer If you're here today and you're wondering, what do I need to do to become part of this kingdom? How do I become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? I'm glad you asked that. God's word makes it very clear. And we'd love to sit down with you this morning and just look at the scriptures together and say, here it is. Here's how Jesus says you come to him. If you're interested in that this morning, then you can make that known just by stepping down to the front here in a moment and saying, I'm interested. What do I need to do? And we'll be glad to share with you from God's word. If you already know what that is, you're ready today to make that step to become a kingdom citizen, then this is a great time to step forward and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to acknowledge who Jesus is. I'm ready to go away from my old life and start his new life. And I'm ready to be baptized today. If that's you, come on forward here in just a moment. Let's pray together as we get ready. Father, thank you for... This message from Jesus today that calls for us to be gracious and patient and humble in the way that we deal with each other and that calls for us to be wise when we carry around the precious treasure of your word. Father, thank you also that you hear us, that you're the good Father who knows us, who loves us, and who will help us. We bring our cares to you right now And we bring to you this time of making decisions. Father, help us to make choices, not just to uh, find it convenient to hear something and feel better about ourselves, but rather to be challenged by the ways that you want us to grow up. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.